So I want to talk about a theology of ministry and the way that I'm going to frame it is to talk about it in terms of eight dimensions, eight dimensions of ministry in four pairs. And the first pair is the hardest to understand. It's the hardest to kind of get your mind around the idea. So I'll probably take the most time with the first one and then move fairly quickly through the other three pairs. But I want to talk about ministry as dimensional because what I'm, what I'm interested in is thinking about ministry as something that is, again, multifaceted, multidimensional, that what we, we need to avoid oversimplification when we talk about what ministry is. Now, I think there is a time for simplicity. I think there's a time for plain speech. But we've had, frankly, we've had too much of that for too long. Things have been oversimplified for us and oversimplified for us and oversimplified for us. And we've kind of lost a sense of how complex ministry actually is. So what I'm interested in doing tonight, at least getting close to doing, is opening up a, a, a glimpse of how complex and multifaceted, multidimensional ministry actually is. And that all of us are called to that. So just a couple of basic assumptions I have before before we move further. The first is I assume that all Christians are ministers, that we're not talking about only ordained ministers or only the clergy. All of Christ's people are people called to the work of Christ. So we're all ministers. So I'm not thinking only of ordained people. And I'm not only thinking of quote unquote spiritual work like singing, preaching, teaching, translating the Bible, missions, evangelism. I'm thinking about anything that brings the goodness of God to bear in the world, like these doctors who are working with my friend Jason. That is ministry too, right? So ministry can happen in a hospital lab as well as behind a pulpit or on the streets in, in some you know, far-flung corner of the world. Ministry is not only multifaceted, but there's a whole range of possible care that can be named ministry. And I, I want to make sure those of you who aren't ordained, you're not in any way singled out. And those of you who don't function in kind of traditional spiritual roles, quote-unquote churchy roles, that doesn't matter. That's, that ministry isn't limited to that. Nothing wrong with those things. That's what I do, right? But it isn't, ministry isn't limited to that. All right, so to single Don out again, since Pastor Jay did, what he's doing at, at coffee is, is just as much ministry as what I'm doing here with you, right? It's no less bringing Christ's goodness to bear in the world, probably more. <laughs> Because if you've if you've had if you've had story coffee, you know, and it's not so much about Don doing the work; the coffee is doing the work, right? It's not, you know, encounter Don and you've encountered Christ. It's encounter that Palmer blend or whatever it happens to be, and 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 you know you're you're touching heaven. <coughs> it converted my wife. I mean, what two years ago, three years ago, she would not touch coffee. Wouldn't she hated it when I drink coffee. And now she's as snobby as you possibly can be about coffee, which is the goal. Right? Like, that's what we're after. Right? Like, that's, that's, that's the aim of all of this. All right, so let's jump in. Eight dimensions of ministry. The first pair, the first two dimensions, are what I'm calling the vertical and the horizontal dimensions of ministry. The vertical and the horizontal. So I'll write these up just to help with, with note-taking. The vertical and the horizontal. And I just want you to picture it like this. Just imagine a horizontal line 
and then a vertical line intersecting it. Right? Following me so far? Now, this vertical line represents grace, what God does. Nature is what we do, and that's represented by this horizontal line. So this line is grace, and this line is nature. Still with me? So there's what we do. There is the work we do in the world. That's me, for instance, me teaching right now, you listening, Don serving coffee, Pastor Jay preaching, Pastor Jonathan leading a song, that doctor looking at the lab reports, whatever the case might be, that's what we're doing. That's nature working. Grace is what only God can do. And the first rule I want to establish in ministry is God does nothing we do, and we do nothing God does. Like what we do, we're doing. It's really us doing it. And it's always us doing it. And what God does, God does. And none of us can do that. Right? So there's one of the confusions I think we have about ministry is that we feel like there are times in our lives in which what we're doing and what God's doing collapse so that you no longer distinguish between what God is saying and what the person is saying or between what God is doing and the person is doing. But there's a serious, serious problem with that model, even though there, it's close to a truth that I'll come back to in a moment. But the real problem with that is, let's, let's just assume that's true. Let's, let's take Pastor Jonathan as an example. Let's say he's leading worship on a Sunday morning, and he's singing and playing, and you all know how talented he is, how gifted he is. He's leading us all in worship. And it's easy for us to think that in that moment, he's doing God's work, Right? But then outside of that moment, all of a sudden, he isn't doing God's work anymore. He's just doing his work. What what would be a problem with that way of thinking? Well, what are the consequences of thinking about ministry that way? When you think that there are only times in which we're doing God's work. Right. And, And it essentially limits what God is doing to a few things that we're doing. Right? So that it's it's as if the only time Pastor Jonathan is really doing God's work is when he's leading worship. Maybe not when you're having coffee with him or when he's over at your house helping you move or when he's praying over the phone with you because your child is sick. Like it's we if you think about us sometimes shifting out of being ourselves into doing God's work, you actually undercut the significance of everything else you do. You also, and this is harder to think about, you also make it so that it's easy to idolize the people who do those things well. Let me just be really vulnerable with you right up front. So when I was 17, I think, I was in a relationship with a, with a girl, and we weren't like, don't let your imaginations run wild, okay, but um, I know now you for sure will that I told you not to, <laughs> but... It, it, wasn't, it wasn't what it should have been. It wasn't a right kind of relationship, right? It wasn't, she is not someone who should have been with me and vice versa. And I knew it. And I, I mean, I was, you know, you're 17, you're praying prayers like, God, I know this isn't right for me, but I don't care, right? I want what I want, right? That's what you do when you're 17. And I remember this woman coming up to me and saying, you know, I felt for a long time that your relationship with her is something's not right about it. And 
I've prayed about it and I've thought about talking to you, but then I realized tonight when I heard you speak that I must have been wrong because God would never work with someone the way he worked with you tonight if you were living in a relationship that wasn't appropriate. Well, guess what? She was wrong, right? It wasn't an inappropriate relationship. Not that, you know, again, don't get crazy here, but it was, I shouldn't have been in that relationship, and I was, but it had nothing, it had no bearing on how I actually performed in terms of teaching, right? So one of the problems with thinking about sometimes we're doing God's work is that the people who do God's work well then become kind of impervious to critique, even self-critique, right? I had another dear friend, and this wrecked his life in all kinds of ways, because when he was, so he had a terrible stutter, but when he led worship, he didn't at all stutter. Not only when he was singing, but when he was speaking. So if he stepped off the stage, and even during practices, he would stutter when he talked. But when service started, he would stop stuttering. And if you have what I'm going to call a superstitious idea of ministry, and that is that sometimes God possesses a person, and now they're not doing human stuff anymore, they're doing divine stuff, then it becomes, well, that must be right. I have to keep doing that. But it doesn't mean that at all. For whatever reason, his body relaxed when he was performing. That's all it was. That wasn't God. No more, no less God than anything else is. He just was a performer who's, for whatever reason, relaxed when he was in that role. But in his head, for the longest time, that was God's work. His life was coming apart in a thousand ways. But he could never turn and look at those things because of this, right? And, I mean, I'm not singling him out for embarrassment. I mean, I think that's all of our story, if we were truthful, right? That there, there are ways in which if you start to think about God's work that way, you, on the one hand, undercut everything you're doing through the week. That's just normal. And on the other hand, you evaluate that in such a way that it becomes impervious to criticism, impervious to discernment. Let's use that word, impervious to discernment. You no longer can discern whether or not the person is right. I remember seeing a documentary once about healing evangelists, and there was a famous healing evangelist who had called a family up. They had a severely, severely ill son, paraplegic, and several other major diseases, heart disease among them. And they called the child up, the healing evangelist did, prayed over the child, and several days later the child died. And the documentarian interviewed the family, and they asked them, do you question God? And they said, yes, absolutely. Like, why would God give us a son and then take him in this way? You know, they had all the questions you would think they would normally have. And then the documentarian asked this question. Do you question brother so-and-so, the healing evangelist? And they said, oh, no. We've seen what God can do through him. Do you see what the way the, the logic is working? Right, Because they've seen this moment where something inexplicable happened, something holy happened, then they worked back from that to this person is trustworthy. But what I want to suggest to you is that there's what we do, and we're all, I'm just as human, just as normal right now as I will be afterwards when we're listening to Jade make fun of my wife for, for whatever happens to be. <laughs> That's what happened last night at dinner. I had to step between them, physically separate the two of them. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> So I, one of my favorite preachers when I was in college, and I, and I still like him as a person, but he said something once, and in, in the instant I realized 
how dangerous he was for himself and for other people. And this is what he said. He said, I like who I am under the anointing better than who I am when I'm not anointed. Guess what? I'm the same guy. And so are you and so is everyone else, right? You don't, you don't, there are ways in which the energy of the moment can possess you, but God doesn't possess you. So what's happening, back to my friend that I talked about, when he was performing, the energy of the performance possessed him. But God wasn't freeing him from stuttering. The energy of the moment was. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't confuse that with some kind of divine approval, either of him or of the work he's doing. It's just the way it happened for him. And the same thing, what, what that preacher meant when he said, I like who I am under the anointing. He's really naming the energy that comes in performance. And some people feed off of that. Some people feed, and, and this is true in sports. This is true in the arts. This is true in the entertainment industry. Some people feed off of performing. I do not. This eats me up. Like this experience for me is horrible. My wife can, can attest to it. Like this is not enjoyable for me. I don't like this. I like study. I like talking about it afterwards. I don't like doing this. But that's got nothing to do with what God is doing. That's just my personality. That's just the way I'm built. And if I enjoyed it, there wouldn't be anything wrong with that. And if I don't enjoy it, there's nothing wrong with that, right? I just want to make sure you're hearing this. I'm spending too long on this point. But just stress that God does what God does. We do what we do. And the miracle is that God can intersect the line without violating it. And this is this intersection right here. That's Jesus. Jesus is the one who is fully human and fully divine. So what Jesus does and says is what God is doing and saying and what a human being is doing and saying. So what we would never want to say, so think about Jesus in the boat, right? You remember the story, Jesus is asleep in the boat and the disciples panic and they wake him up and he calms the storm. So for centuries, Christians have been preaching that text this way. As a human being, he slept. And as God, he calmed the storm. No. As the one who is fully divine and fully human, as God in the flesh, he slept. And as God in the flesh, he calmed the storm. He wasn't more human when he was sleeping and less divine, and more divine when he was calming the storm and less human. He was fully human and fully divine, sleeping, fully human, fully divine, calming the storm. And, and the analogy holds to us, too. Like, we never become less human in the work that we're doing. Now, some of us, especially those of us, I was talking with, with someone as we walked in who had been Lutheran. Where did you go? Oh, there you are. Those of, if you're Lutheran, you're probably safe from this teaching. But if you were raised Pentecostal or charismatic, you essentially believe the Holy Spirit is God saving you from having to be human. That the Holy Spirit is God's way of taking your human limitations and superseding them. So you've got whatever it is to be human. That's not good enough. So God sends you the Spirit and you exceed what it means to be human. Not at all. The Holy Spirit makes us fully human. The Spirit fills our humanity. It doesn't transcend our humanity. It doesn't exceed our humanity. So I'm not less human the more I'm doing God's work. I'm just being human. Always, whether I'm sleeping or teaching or arguing with my kids, which is roughly 74% of my life, whatever it is I'm doing, I'm doing it. 
and I'm, I'm not becoming a different person. Like, we don't believe that you step up on this stage and you get transformed into something that's more human. Or that when you step off this stage, you become less human. Right? Reject that totally. Right? So, everybody with me so far? Right? We've got what we do and what God does. Jesus is the one who's doing both. Right? He's the one who is fully human and fully divine. And I'm going to circle back and talk more about this in a moment. But all, all I really want to stress right now is that you have to know the difference between creation, which is what grace does, and causation, which is what we do. We make things happen. God creates. We cannot create, and God, God does not cause. So what I mean is, let me, let me give you an example. I can... And this, this is actually really, really freeing if you can hear it the right way, right? So, and if I can say it the right way, which we'll see. So when you make this distinction, one of the things that comes with it, if, if you only think in terms of causation, then your ministry is only as effective as your ministers are expert. Right? You get, in, in that kind of equation, if you're good at ministry, you get good results, so good preachers have a bunch of listeners because they're good preachers. And good teachers transform people's lives because they're giving them good teaching. And that good teaching they take into their life and then they live it and that transforms their lives. And good singers, so on down the line. Good doctors, good lawyers, fill in the blank, right? And that is how nature works. But that's not how God works. So God can use something that doesn't actually work very well in terms of nature, and make it something graced. Right? So, for instance, you could have, and if, if you study, as I have done, if you study the history of preaching, you do have those people who are expert preachers, who are just in terms of the skill of preaching, they are good at it. Right? So you have people like, for instance, St. Ambrose, who's an early church father and is apparently a great speaker in his day. He was known for being a great preacher. And St. Augustine, who everyone knows, was converted under his preaching. And he says, the only reason I was ever converted is that I was attracted first to his skill as a speaker. So Augustine's teaching rhetoric at the university, and he's like, that guy knows how to talk. And he goes and studies how the man talks, and in the process gets caught up in the truth that Ambrose is proclaiming and converts. Right? But the moment of his actual conversion didn't come while Ambrose was preaching. It happened while he was sitting with his friend. His friend was reading the Bible, and he was sitting, and he heard a little child's voice say, take and read. And he thought, that's weird. So he took his friend's book, his Bible, and read, and God struck his heart, and he converts. Now think about this. So he's going to hear Ambrose, who's like a, a world-class speaker, right? Like a, 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 a 10 out of 10 in terms of skill. And even though it draws him toward the gospel and God is at work in that, he doesn't get converted hearing Ambrose preach some masterpiece sermon. He gets converted hearing some little girl playing a game, say, take and read, not even knowing he's hearing her on the other side of the fence. And then he takes the Bible and the rest is history, Right? So what's happening there is God created a moment for Augustine. And God didn't need the skill of Ambrose to do it. 
Right? He didn't need some great, mighty, and this is, this is 1 Corinthians, Paul. This is exactly Paul's point, right? When he talks about the foolishness of preaching. And he's like, yeah, I'm no Apollos. Apollos is a great speaker, and I'm not. But that doesn't mean that God is somehow more at work in him than he is in me. And again, as if you study the history of preaching, you will find that over and over again, that some of the greatest preachers in the Christian tradition are people who had speech impediments, people who couldn't be heard well when they spoke in a room, people who had bad body posture. I mean, all kinds of examples of this, where the, these people who don't have much skill nonetheless become the site in which God does the creative. They become a location in which God does the, the creative. Now, that doesn't mean skilled people are somehow less valuable. So, see, I grew up in a tradition that they thought they had figured God out, and that is, okay, God likes to use foolish things, so the more foolish we are, the more God will use us. <laughs> no, literally, that's what they thought. So we grew up, and I grew up in a tradition where preachers did not study, and they purposely didn't study. Because they thought if you studied, you're leaning on human wisdom. You're leaning on nature. And we want to lean on grace. But really all they were doing is bad nature. And bad nature isn't grace. It's just bad nature. Like stupid preaching isn't the foolishness of God. Stupid <laughs> preaching is just stupid preaching. But here's the thing. Sometimes stupid preaching still becomes the location in which God does what only God can do. I, I met a, a priest once. She's a, a priest in the Episcopal Church. And she, her conversion moment came in a dance club in which she's just dancing with her friends and suddenly she hears the voice of God saying, these are my children, shepherd them. She's not even a Christian. She's just in a club dancing. And God says, now, I, that doesn't mean you should start find, I don't know, does Colorado Springs have dance clubs? I don't know if they're allowed to. The Focus on the Family Dance Club, whatever, whatever is allowed <laughs> in Colorado Springs. I mean, it doesn't mean go there, and that's where God will speak to you. And any more than it means don't study and somehow you'll be more anointed, right? It's just to say God does not need any of this, but God is also not ashamed to work with any of this. So God never needs it, doesn't need your skill or your lack of skill. He can work with your skill or your lack of skill. Either way. The problem with ministry, though, is we cause things. And when you start causing things, you never know what all the consequences are going to be. And this is hard to hear, but I'll say it quickly and move on so we don't argue about it. <laughs> One of the hard truths is God only does good. God never does evil. God never uses evil. God does good. We don't always do good. And I don't mean we don't always do well. I mean we don't always do good. And we don't also always do well, right? But even when we do good, because of the nature of the world, sometimes you can do a good thing that has a bad effect. Now this is one of the ways in which our, our theologies of ministry have been so naive. And that is, you think just because you help someone, and it can be genuine help, it doesn't mean that the consequences of that aren't going to be severe for them. Right? So you remember there's this, in John 9, there's the story of the man by the pool. No, no, no. That's John 5, the, the man by the pool. And Jesus asked him a question, do you want to get well? 
because the man had been there for 38 years, and he had no one to put him in. So the reason Jesus is asking him, drawing this question up, is not because Jesus doesn't know what he wants to do or what should be done. He's making the man aware of the fact that you don't know what life will be like when suddenly you're capable of taking care of yourself because you don't have anybody. You have, you have nothing. You've been at this pool for 38 years. Just because you can get up and walk and carry your mat, where are you going to go? You have no job skills. You have no personal relationships. What's he going to do? And there are all kinds of ways in which we can genuinely help people, but if we're not discerning and thinking long-term and big picture, we can help people in the short run and hurt them in the long run. So think about this. Think about a case where, that's too controversial. I'm going to skip that example. <laughs> Maybe next time I come. I'm discerning. Yes, exactly. I'm just scared, actually. I'm not discerning anything. Uh, but there are all kinds of ways in which you can say something that's true for someone. But still, you shouldn't say it because of what might result from it even though what you're saying is true and would do good for them, that doesn't mean that they're ready to live with the consequences of what that good would mean. So it's not just a matter of, so I mean, let's give you an example. Let's say I, I, when I was living at home, my dad forced me to take different jobs trying to break all my bad habits. He failed in that, among other things, but one of the things he made me do was haul hay, which I know Don has done. So any of you hauled hay before? Unbelievably miserable work, right? And I heard a story, like one day we came out of the field and we drove up to the barn and there was a water hose at the barn. And I went over and picked it up and turned it on and started to put water over my head. And my cousin, Mark, slapped it out of my hand. And he said, if you get that water as cold as it is on your body, as hot as it is, it could hurt you. Right? So what he, and then he wanted to tell me about a friend of his that had had a, a severe reaction to, to that very thing. He had seen it happen. So water's good, right? Cold water's good for hot bodies, right? For hot bodies, right? For <laughs> overheated bodies. I have no hot body. I do have an overheated body, Right? <laughs> there, yeah, we, I was telling them about a story of a bishop I know who on Easter preached a sermon that involved taking off his shirt and slathering different colors of paint all over himself, and that I was going to do that tonight, but <laughs> I'm not. But the point is, what I hope that kind of homely illustration illustrates is that just because you have cold water and somebody is overheated doesn't mean you just pour it on their head. Right, you've, you've got to be discerning about what will the consequences be if I say this. And you can't always know. And a lot of times you're going to have to make a prudential judgment. You're going to say, God, the best I can tell, I should say this. And so I'm going to say it. And you have to trust that, again, God is creative. And even if what you say turns out to have been something you shouldn't have said, God can still be God. Right? So everything isn't riding on whether or not you get it right. But you need to be aware that you can do the right thing and it have bad consequences anyway. Right? And now we're not even talking about doing the wrong thing. Right? Like, our churches do incredible damage to people, but not only because of what we do wrong. We can do incredible, incredible damage to people by what we do right. 
right? So let me, let me just off the cuff think of this one example. Let's say you have a church and the ministry is really focused on marriage and on having a robust marriage. That's a wonderful ministry. Uh, we have good friends, Brent and Janice Sharp. I think they've been here, yeah? Wonderful ministry, right? And wonderful people, even, even better people. But if you're not careful, if you make that what you do as a church, you put pressure on people in the congregation to have a marriage that they might not can have. And what if they're, right, if marriage at all, what single people, widows, you know, you get the point, right? So it's not that, that's cold water. But you have to remember there are overheated bodies in the room. And you can't just give that without thinking about the consequences, right? But again, even if you get it wrong, God is God, right? God, you can't keep God from being God to anybody. But you can determine how God has to be God to somebody. You can't keep God from being God to anybody. You're not going to keep God from being good. But if you hurt somebody, then God's goodness has to be healing. Whereas if you don't hurt them, God's goodness doesn't have to heal them before it can begin to enrich them and, and fulfill them. So you can't keep God from being God. You can determine how God is going to be active in someone's life. So I think as a minister, I, I want all of you to feel a certain weight, and that is it isn't just a matter of getting it right. It's a matter of being discerning about what I'm doing, even when it's right, and yet at the same time trusting that God is God even when I'm wrong. You with me? Like, be discerning, even when you're getting it right, maybe especially when you're getting it right, but trust God in the midst of that. So that's the first dimension. See, I told you that was going to take forever. We should probably just, how much time do I have left? Five minutes. Okay, let's do uh, one a minute. The next dimension is the left-right dimension. The left and right dimension. So look at 2 Corinthians 6 with me really quickly. How many right-handed people do we have in the room? Hold up your left hand, please. How many left-handed people do we have? Hold up your right hand, please. How many, I like to tell my kids the word is amphibious, ambidextrous people do we have in the room? Not many, a few, all right. So you'll see how that's relevant. 2 Corinthians 6. Verse 3. 2 Corinthians 6, 3. 2 Corinthians 6, 3. We are putting no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. We're going to keep reading, but I'll say this first. The most important thing we do in ministry is not interfere with what God is doing. The most important thing we do is not put obstacles in people's way. Not unnecessarily complicate God's work in their life. And, and the way, what are some ways, you tell me, what are some ways we might unnecessarily complicate the work of God in someone's life? Can you give me an example? I, I don't say more. I don't know what you mean. So when I came here, I faced one of the oldest gentlemen I know in my life that I knew how to believe that I said something to his wife that I should not have said or vice versa. So yeah. <laughs> uh, I started thinking here in this particular 
Yeah, and, it's, and so th thank you for that. I think I mean, the issue with that, right, is when you, and this Paul deals with this as the issue of meat offered to idols, right? And it comes up in Corinthians, it comes up in Romans. And it's a really difficult issue because if you start by thinking, I can't do anything that might offend someone else. Well, I hate to tell you this, but you're not going to be able to do anything, <laughs> Right? But that doesn't mean that there aren't things you shouldn't do because you have other people in mind. And again, what's required is discernment. Are, am I going to stop doing this for the sake of these people? Or am I going to stop doing this or keep doing this even though it might offend those people? And I think what, I think what Paul directs them to is to say this. As much as you can, keep that private. Don't make things an issue if they don't have to be an issue. Right? And... Even though there's a lot of teaching and preaching against how individualized our culture is, there is a time and a place to have privacy and to have secrets as a family. Not, not bad secrets, not skeletons in the closet, but closets, right? Not skeletons in them, but closets, right? Keep things to yourself. You don't have to put everything on Facebook, people. <laughs> right? You, you, don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to make everything a matter of principle. Right? And I think Paul's first advice to people is don't make things an issue that don't have to be an issue. This is completely off the track, but I'll say it here. I think one of the most important parts of quote-unquote discipleship is learning to tell the difference between your conscience and the will of God. Just because something bothers your conscience doesn't mean God is against it. Now, you should pay attention to what your conscience is telling you. You can't just run over it. You can't bully your conscience without hurting yourself. But that isn't God's will. Don't trust your conscience as God's will. That's that's a dead end. So just keep in mind that this is the way I feel, but your principles aren't the same as God's revelation. Have your principles. I, there's no problem with that. But don't confuse that with the will of God for people, for you or for anybody else. So back to this, this point about how do we make sure we don't put unnecessary obstacles in people's way. I think here's, here's, here's where the rub is, right? So on a Sunday morning, let's say you have a congregation of 250 people, and Pastor Jade or Pastor Jonathan or Pastor Christy are preaching, one of them is preaching, there are going to be some people in that room that if it gets too deep, they're going to take offense. They're going to be like, who are you? Why are you talking down to me? I just, I'm just here. I just want to encounter the Lord. I, don't, I didn't come here for some revelation. I just, I just want to meet Jesus. And if you get up and preach and it's too simple, there are going to be people in the room be like, I can't be fed here at this church. i got to go somewhere else where I can be fed, right? And the fact of the matter is, you will never be all things to all people, right? You're never going to, get, get, you're never going to hit the sweet spot, right? It's not the Goldilocks story. You're never going to have the chair that's just right and the bed that's just right and the porridge that's just right. It's always either too big or too small depending on who's in the room. The key is learning how to live and live with and rejoice in the bed that's too small and the soup that's too hot or whatever the case might be, right? To, to, to come to the place where you can say, yeah, that sermon was over my head, and thank God, because that, mean it, that means it hit somebody else square in the chest. 
Or yeah, that sermon was, you know, water around my feet. But thank God there were children in the room. And they didn't need to be out 20 feet deep. Right? So it's, it's learning to think about that ministry is for a group of people. And there's no way to do anything that's good for everybody in a group. It's not possible. Like even when Jesus, I think about this sometimes, even when Jesus turned the fish and the loaves into the, the, the feast that he did, you know there were people there with gluten allergies. And they were like, uh, hey, Peter, is there like a gluten-free option here? And Peter's like, call fire down from heaven and kills the person. <laughs> Consume the allergy, yes. But no, I mean, a little less silly. Think about when Jesus, uh, two, two, two examples. When Jesus cast the demons out of legion, right, where does he send them? Into the pigs. And what happens to the pigs? They're dead. Now, it's important. Let's just say the men, the shepherds, what are the piggards? Pig herders. Pig herders. <laughs> I didn't know the word. I suddenly realized. Uh, the swinerds. Yes, there we go. So let's just say that all of those guys are bad. Let, let all of them have their hearts hardened. They're stiff-necked, as the Bible says. And so they kind of got what they had coming. It's their pigs that get run over the cliff. But so what? I mean, these men are sinners. But what about their kids at home? What about those infants at home that now aren't going to be fed properly from their nursing mothers because their nursing mothers aren't going to have the food that they need because Jesus just sent these pigs over a cliff? Right? That's the world we live in in which our acts have consequences that just keep running on and on and on and on and on and on. And we can't see the end of it. I preached a couple of weeks ago about the slave girl. Remember, Paul and Silas come to the city, and this little slave girl follows them around saying, these men are men of God, and they proclaim a way of salvation. And then Paul casts the spirit out of her. And we read that story so naively and think, God is good. But what do you think happened to that girl? She was a slave girl. So people owned her, and she was useful to them as long as she had that gift. But now she's a useless slave girl. I don't need to tell you what happens to slave girls that are useless. So everything we do has consequences that just keep running and running and running and running, and we have no idea what happened to that slave girl. What happened to that slave girl's children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren? So that one day where, and, Paul, and Luke is explicit, Paul was angry at her. So Paul lost his temper, cast the spirit out of this girl, and then the girl isn't mentioned again. We have no idea what happened to her. But we know she went on living. And then she had children. And those children had children. And there were consequences in all of their lives that ran back to that moment where Paul took that gift from her. Maybe he should have done it. Doesn't mean that there aren't bad consequences, even if the act itself is good. Only God can act in ways in which there are no bad consequences. Everything we do ripples out in ways that we, we can't imagine, right? So we're just trying our best not to make it harder than it needs to be. I mean, part of what I want you to feel right now is that this is difficult. Right? And if we were in medical school, if I was 
your instructor in medical school. You would know coming in, there's a chance you might not make it. This is hard. And caring for people's lives is so much harder than caring for people's brains and hearts and knees and elbows. So preparing for ministry is not just you've got a gift and you want to use it. Preparing for ministry is coming to terms with reality. And reality is hard and complex and contradictory and confusing. And we trust God in the midst of all of it, but we don't, we're not in denial about any of it. Right? It's, it's gotten very, very, very quiet. Let's keep reading. Um, not getting anyone's way. So the no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we have commended ourselves in every way through. Now, this is typical Paul. So he says, we have shown ourselves to be, to be good for you in every possible way. Let me tell you how we've been good for you. How we've shown ourselves to be commendable. Through great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings. You know, Paul had his thesaurus open at this point. He was just like, <laughs> Google's difficulties. And just sliding them over. <laughs> copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste. Imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Then suddenly, out of nowhere, he shifts. Purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, holiness of spirit, genuine love, fruitful speech, and the power of God. And then notice this next phrase. With the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. And you know this, you've heard this taught before. In Paul's culture, the right hand is the hand of honor, and the left hand is the hand of dishonor. So he says, we've shown ourselves commendable, commendable to you in honorable ways, purity, the power of God, miracles, intercession. But we've also shown it to you in dishonorable ways, hardship, riots, sickness, affliction, sleepless nights. So the key to ministry is to be ambidextrous. If you're going to do ministry well, you have to be just as good at the left-handed stuff, the dishonorable stuff, as you are at the right-handed stuff, the good stuff. And if you're not, then your ministry will become really, really imbalanced. Like if you've only got a left-handed ministry, then it's all about dishonor. Man, who wants that? I kind of like that, but uh, the rest of you don't, right? But, I mean, who wants, if it's only ever honor, it, it misses the point of the gospel. It misses the heart of this intersection that we talked about, because this makes a cross. That intersection of the vertical and the horizontal is a cross. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, so let me read on. I think it will explain itself. But then I'll, if not, I'll come back and, and say more. So he says, the right hand and the left, honorable and dishonorable, in ill repute and good repute, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet are well known, as dying and see we are alive, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. So I think what Paul's listing here are two different kinds of things. One kind of dishonor is when you're not what people expect you to be, they're offended by you. So it's dishonorable in the sense that you don't meet their expectations. 
Right, so I was teaching at a Bible school in Kiev several years ago, and I was, I mean, a dean myself there. And at some point, I, I was praying with them, and I just sat down on my stool. I had no idea, I found out later, that I deeply offended all of them and basically lost their respect. Because for them, when you pray, you don't sit. You can kneel or you can stand, but you cannot sit. So I was dishonorable. Right, not because I did anything wrong, really. But they had an expectation of me, and I violated it. And people are always going to have those expectations, right? I mean, my, like my grandmother, um, I was going to say may she rest in peace, but she doesn't want that. She's not a, she's not a peaceful person. May, she's, she's with the Lord, but the Lord knows it, I promise you that. <laughs> but she had this thing about preachers dressing up appropriately. And for her, that meant the preacher wears a jacket at least and a button-down shirt, if not a tie. And when the pa- a new pastor at her church came in wearing a T-shirt, uh-uh, it might as well, I mean, he might as well have come in stripped naked. <laughs> like, there would have been no more offense on her part. Like, she went full offense at the T-shirt, right? That's, that's dishonorable, but that's not really what I'm interested in right now. I think there is that level. But the dishonorable stuff is when Paul says we are poor, we have nothing, we are sorrowful. So to me, the dishonorable stuff is when you don't meet your own expectation. That if you can't minister without meeting your own expectations, then you won't really minister. Right? If, you're, if you're always trying to do it perfectly, you won't do it because you're never going to do it perfectly. So part of what I'm interested in in terms of the dishonorable is doing what you don't like to do even though it's what people need. Right? It's, it's not fulfilling for you. Like, man, I was a terrible pastor, I promise you. My wife saved me from most of that because she's good at it but one of the things that used to make me so angry is when people would say things like i need i need to be in a church where i can use my gift no you don't no you don't first of all there's a whole wide world use your gift 24 hours a day for all i care this church does not exist as a stage for you to perform what you think of as your gift because what underlies all that yeah i'm revealing a terribly wicked heart right now. But what underlies all that, right, is this belief that I only want to work with my right hand. I only want, to, I only want people to see me doing what I do well. Like, I'll, I'll sing if I can sing. But I'm not going to sing if I can't sing. Right? But that's not what ministry is. Ministry is, is also about I'm going to do even the quote-unquote dishonorable thing if that's all that can be done to help these people. I'm going to do what's good for them, even if they don't like it. Right? So I think that the, and this issue of reputation, I think, is at the heart of it. And this is part back to your point about the testimony. I think the key point is it's not my testimony that matters for people. It's my witness to Jesus that matters for people. I don't need people to think I'm a good person. I need them to think that God is good. I, I, it, I really don't think it's even very helpful 
for people to think highly of you. Because that can set them up to think that, here's the thing. I had a, a mentor years ago. I was on a staff at a church, and there were several of us pastors all about the same age. And our bishop was talking to us about what we needed to do differently. And he, this, is, this was so insulting to me. He said to the other person, the, the other guy at the table with me, he was like, your problem is you're too good to need Jesus. Now, that's super offensive to me because that, I mean, that's, that was his way of saying you're not really that talented. I mean, you're going to have to have Jesus if this is going to work for you. <laughs> like when I was in Bible school, I won the Pilgrim's Progress Award. You talk about passive aggressive. Pilgrim Progress Award. Like, I mean, all that that award says is, man, we never thought you would get to this point. <laughs> That's all that means. Like, it's a, you're graduating. Oh, my gosh. But listen, there's something really, really true about this. The people that walk away from Jesus are not the prostitutes. They're the rich young rulers. The people who are most at risk of, and this is what I was preaching about on Sunday morning, the people that are most at risk of missing the rhythms of the Spirit are the people who don't really think they need the Spirit because they can do what they do well. But the point, I've again, I'm taking too long on this, but the, the key to ministry is do right and left hand. I'm about to come to this. Stealing my thunder, brother. <laughs> no, it's, <laughs> I think, let me use my wife, and go ahead and put the second poem up on the screen if you would. Let me give you an example. So like I, I told you before, I'm not a good pastor. And my wife, she is a good speaker, but she hates speaking. So for me, right-handedness is public speaking. Even though I don't enjoy it, it's like one of the two things that I can do and not embarrass myself terribly. The other thing is read, but you wouldn't know about that. And if you want to come over and listen to me read, I'll, I'll read to you. I don't mind doing that. I actually enjoy that more than this. But for her, this would be painful in another way. Because it's, for her, this, is, this would be a left-handed thing. But for us to minister rightly, it doesn't just mean that I always do the right-handed thing, never pastor, just teach, and she always does the left-handed thing, Never, pastors and not. No, we have to both be ready at any given time that I have to be pastoral. Just because I'm not a pastor doesn't mean I can't be pastoral in a moment, right? And just because she's not a teacher doesn't mean there isn't a time for her to step up and teach, right? And, and, and all of us need to think in, in those ways. All right. This is one of my favorite poems by Robert Morgan. Um, if you haven't been offended, this is your chance. When the most intense revivals swept the mountains just a century ago, participants described the shouts and barks in unknown tongues, the jerks of those who tried to climb the walls, the holy dance and laugh. But strangest are reports of what was called the holy cuss. Sometimes a man who spoke in tongues and leapt for joy would break into an avalanche of cursing that would stun with brilliance and duration. Those that heard would say the Holy Spirit spoke as from a whirlwind, Words burned on the air like chains of dynamite. The listeners felt transfigured and felt true contact and true presence then, as if the shock of unfamiliar and blasphemous profanity broke through beyond the reach of prayer and song and halo, that's what that should be, to answer heaven's anger. 
with its head buried. What's happening here? I hate that typo. My fault. Sorry about that. Halo echo. What do you think? What, what is this about? What's the holy cuss? I mean, this really did happen and still does happen. Uh, yeah. Yeah, great. Yes, absolutely. And and this this is the so much of the Psalms are filled with that kind of venom, that kind of anger, right? And so yes, I mean I think at one level it's just can we be honest enough to with God to do this? Uh, I had a professor once who was a, a theologian, but he had also was a, a psychiatrist and psychologist. And he was teaching us about family counseling. And he said this, it was one of the most shocking things. I I was pretty offended, to be honest with you. But now I love it. So now you get to be offended, and then a few years you'll love it. (laughs) Yeah, it's the gift that keeps on giving. But he, he said, there are going to be people you counsel as pastors who have been taught as Christians that they cannot be angry with each other. And because they cannot be angry with each other, they cannot be truthful with each other. And because they cannot be truthful with each other, the brokenness in their marriage will never be exposed for healing. It'll never come to light because they're never mad enough to say what they really think. And he said, this is my technique. Sitting in front of me, husband and wife, when I can sense that they're, that, they're in that kind of relationship where they're never truthful with each other, I make them cuss at each other in front of me. <laughs> He's like, because there's something about being willing to break that taboo, to break their conscience, that opens them up to starting to say the things they need to say. Now, they don't need to say curse words, but it becomes a mechanism for unlocking the door, opening the window, letting loose the things that need to be loosed. Right? We've preached a, a kind of Christian, not we, some people, my people, have preached such a repressed Christianity that's so afraid. We're more afraid of the curse word than we are of the truth or the lie that underlies our speech. Right? And that's just silly. I mean, it doesn't mean you should say whatever you want to say whenever you want to say it. I mean, guard your mouth. But, man, God's not fretting about your curse words. He wants you to be truthful in prayer and in conversation. Sunday, Pastor Jade's just going to be dropping F-bombs left and right. (laughs) He's like, he's like, Sabbath this. All right, so really quickly, two more. This one I'm going to say really quickly. The other, the, the third and, the, well, I guess fifth and sixth dimensions that I want to talk about are the in and the out. Some people specialize in what I call inward or interior ministry. That's the ministry of prayer, the ministry of contemplation, the ministry of worship, the ministry of teaching, the ministry that generally happens in your prayer closet or in the church sanctuary. That's a, a kind of inward ministry. And a lot of people specialize in that. There's nothing wrong with it. It's good. Let's call that the Mary ministry. Right? Mary as the contemplative prayer, the listener, the one being taught, the student of the word. And then others specialize in what I call 
the, Mar- the Mar- what anyone can call the Martha ministry, which is the out dimension, the ministry of action. These are people who are less interested in what's happening in the pews and more interested in what's happening at the coffee shop or happening at the bar or happening in the streets, right? They're much more interested in having a conversation with the homeless person than they are with pastor so-and-so who's a superstar, right? And a lot of that has to do with calling and gifting. What I would stress is that all Christians should be able to move in and out. That even though there may be an emphasis, emphasis, just like I think you might be right-hand dominant, you should still be able to use your left hand. And even if you may be outwardly ministering in a dominant way, you're a street minister or whatever the case, the case might be, or a medical missionary, like if, if your ministry focuses primarily outward, don't lose touch with that inward movement of contemplation and prayer and devotion to the word and vice versa. If you're a person who is devoted to teaching and is devoted to listening to the word, to sitting at the feet of Jesus, don't lose that, never lose that. But don't think that that somehow frees you from the responsibility of, of living out in the world. One of my favorite sermons, we were talking about the history of preaching before, one of the favorite, my favorite sermons of all time was preached by a medieval monk to a bunch of other monks but thankfully somebody wrote it down and we we have it and he preached about mary and martha and what he said is you've all heard that mary is the one who did the right thing and martha was the one who did the wrong thing mary's the spiritual one martha's the carnal one he said but in fact it's the other way around that in spiritual development the easiest thing to do is to learn to pray the hardest thing to do is to live and pray at the same time to actually be out in the world and be a person of prayer too. One of my favorite examples of this is Mother Maria. If you'll throw the, her picture up on the screen. This is Mother Maria. She is Mother Maria of Paris is her, is her name. She's called the saint of the open doors. Because in the run up to, she died in the Holocaust. She uh, died at Ravenswood, in fact. She was known for her intercession on behalf of, of the poor and the Jews during the time of persecution and she had an open door policy and she was she was famous and infamous for fighting with bishops and priests because they loved having church instead of being the church and she had no stomach for that right and she talked a lot about we need to church our lives and so there's a quote I want to share with you Uh, by the way one of my favorite stories is by a bishop an orthodox bishop who said he saw her one day at a restaurant in the streets of Paris sitting clothed just like that, full garb, smoking a cigarette and drinking coffee. And he ran the other way. He was so afraid of her. He was like, something about her presence was so frightening, right? I like, I like saints like that, right? Like, give, give me saints that are a little bit intimidating, right? And so she, she would not have agreed with you about the beer. She would have just been throwing it back. <laughs> no, 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 I'm just, I'm just messing with you. So she says this about churching our lives. Must we, indeed, must we attend all the church services in order to church our life or hang an icon in every room and burn an icon lamp in front of it? No, the churching of life. This phrase was being bandied around by people about how we need to church people again. And she was like, nonsense. I mean, if you mean people need to go to church more, no. She said, Lord, we go all the time as it is. Right? Take a Sabbath. There was a pun there. See, like we go to church on the Sabbath. So. The, the churching of life is the realization of the whole world as one great church. 
The whole world is one great church, adorned with icons, persons who should be venerated, honored, and loved, because these icons are true images of God that have the holiness of the living God within them. Do you hear what she's saying? She's like, you're wanting to come into a building and look at beautiful icons on the wall, and I'm saying, sometimes just leave the building and walk out on the street. Those are icons of God. This is the house of God. Yes, that is the house of God. And the key, what I want to stress here is just, it's not an either or. Don't live outside or inside. It's a both and, right? And it, it integrate a life in which you're in a rhythm of in and out. Even if the primary emphasis is on the out, don't forget about the in and vice versa. Last of all, oh, one idea I should have said, she also did a lot of teaching around the idea of the spiritually poor. And she believed that the primary disease destroying the church are people who hoard their spiritual riches. People who are interested in becoming spiritually rich. People who go from church, from revival to a revival looking for experiences. People who attend churches because of the church is feeding them. They're consuming Christianity. And she thinks this is the disease that's laying waste to the church. So the last dimension is the full and empty dimension. And we're going to go back to, and this is what Pastor Jade was, was mentioning just a moment ago. We're going to go back to the Elijah-Elisha story that I preached about on Sunday. So go to 1 Kings 17. First Kings 17. So what's just happened in the previous chapter is King Ahab has married Jezebel and they've started worshiping idols. So that's the background to this next statement. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Cojones, right? I mean, think about this. It's Ahab, the king. And he walks up to him and says, in the name of God, it's not going to rain until I say so. Now, this is not vague. Uh, this, you know, I've had a lot of prophetic words in my life. Most of them are things like, yea, thus saith the Lord. He will bless you going in and going out. In the city and in the field. Look not to the right hand nor to the left, saith the Lord. I have no idea what that means. But that's not what, I, I mean, that's not what Elijah's doing. He's not saying, hey, God's ha unhappy with you. He's saying, listen, man, I control the weather. Not I can predict the weather. I control the weather. Think about that. And here's the thing. He appears out of nowhere. And one of the striking things in the text is that he's identified as Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba, not as Elijah son of anyone. He has no backstory. We know nothing about Tishba. And we know I have no idea who his family is. We have no idea how old this man is. We have nothing about his story. It's just suddenly he's in the king's palace 
wagging his finger in the king's face saying, I control the weather, man. And you, not the weather, man. I do that too, I guess. I control the weather, comma, man. And it's not going to rain again as long as you are raining. Get it? It's not going to rain again as long as you are raining. But let's go to the end of his story. Man, I'm being kind of silly. Second Kings chapter 2. So that's, that's how Elijah appears, right? That's just his, he just manifests. It's not going to rain until I say it does. Verse 9, 2-9. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I may do for you before I am taken from you. Elisha said, please let me inherit a double share of your spirit. He responded, you have asked a hard thing. You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it will be granted you. If not, it will not. Now this is a very different ending from the beginning we had. In the beginning, Elijah is fire. Elijah is fierce and bold. Elijah is a lion. By the end of the story, he's a little lamb. But he breaks into ministry with a roar. At the end, he's whimpering. You've asked a hard thing. Dude, you controlled the weather. (laughs) You've asked a hard thing. Not hard for Elisha. Hard for Elijah. Because Elijah is a fatherless man who's now trying to be a father to a son. Elijah never had the blessing of the father. He didn't have a father. He didn't have someone to pass on the family blessing. He's a bastard. And now he's a father. You've asked a hard thing. You've asked a hard thing. I don't know if I can do it. And what I want to suggest to you is that ministry is an ark. I want you to envision two things, then I'm going to shut up. I want you to envision a hearth, like the the fireplace, the curve of the fireplace. Starts at at a certain point where we we get an arc. Elijah appears on the scene fully grown. He's at the peak of his powers. His ego is fully manifest. He's roaring. But when he ends, he's at the end of himself. If you see me when I disappear, then you can be my son. Because the way we actually Two things I want to say to you. The way we actually really impact people's lives is not what we say at the peak of our powers, but what we let people see when our powers are gone. What we really do that matters is not what we say to Ahab when our ego is swollen, but what we say to our sons and daughters, our friends and neighbors when our ego is shattered. 
life, all of us, those of us who don't die some kind of sudden death, untimely death, we're headed for humiliation. This is what, this is what Jesus says to Peter. When you were young, you did what you wanted to do. But when you're old, you won't be able to put on your own clothes. You won't be able to tie your own sash. You won't be able to put on your own belt. We're all headed there. And the goal of ministry is to be the kind of person that when we're there, we're ready to be graceful. Anyone can be impressive. But can you really be graceful when all of your powers are stripped away from you? The other image I want to give you is the image of the phases of the moon. That we pass, that ministry is about phases, seasons. And sometimes it's half a moon, and sometimes it's a quarter of a moon, and sometimes it's a full moon. This is the, the peak of your powers. And so if you can think of it like this, the moon is always phasing as it goes around the circle, or around the arc, I mean. So there will be times in which even at the peak of your powers, you have relatively low moments. But you're still at the peak of your powers, right? It's one thing to have a bad day when you're healthy. It's another thing to have a bad day when you're chronically ill on this side of the arc. You understand the difference? You can, you can be sad. I mean, it's like I was having a conversation, text conversation with Zoe, my daughter, yesterday, and I was, she asked how my day was, and I was like, yeah, not great, I've had a headache. And I was like, how about yours? She's like, it's been really bad. And then you see the three little dots. She said, I had a donut. That should have been funnier. I don't know why you didn't laugh. That's not a bad day, guys. Like, she had a donut, right? But, I mean, in her 14-year-old world, that's, I mean, it made her tummy hurt. Right? I mean, it's, it's, all of this stuff is relative. So you can have weak moments, but you're still in your strength. The question is, can you have moments when you're really weak, thoroughly weak, through and through weak, in which you're still graceful? Can you still yield the fragrance of God when your flower is wilted, when it's, when it's actually dead or dying, not dead? So... have a bunch of other things to say but I think I'll end it with this I suggest so ministry begins we begin ministry as children spiritually speaking we're, we're, we're immature but children can minister powerfully but they minister from their inexperience from their naivete from their innocence from how cute it is that someone would say something like that you know the my five-year-old he does stuff all the time he shouldn't do but it's just so cute because he's five when he's seven, I'm going to knock him down for that, right? Not really. I would not do that. But we can minister from that place. And then there's the ministry that comes from being adults. When we're adults, we minister from a place of maturity. But then there's the ministry of the elder. And the image that I want to leave you with is Jacob leaning on his staff, blesses his children. Now think about this. Jacob, like Elijah, didn't have a wonderful family story. He stole the blessing from his dad. When he was young, he stole the blessing. But now he's on the other end of the ark. He's at the other end of the fireplace ark. And now he has to bless his sons. 
but he's only able to bless his sons when he's weak. So back here, right, he's the grabber. He's the heel grabber. He's the one who takes. But there's no strength left at the end for him. He's leaning on his staff just to say the blessing. And the goal of ministry is to become like this as soon as possible. The goal is to become as weak, as fragile, as vulnerable as possible as soon as possible. So that you're not afraid to be this vulnerable and weak and dependent, even though you might be at this point in your life. Good. All right, I think I'm done. Yeah, yeah. Just for the sake of the recording, I'll use the microphone. Um, yeah, very good. And will both of those mics pick up in the recording, Jonathan? Okay, great. Chris, would you like a one of these guys right yeah, here? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, let me lay down a few ground rules here. Because it's inevitable that when we get into Q&A, it usually ends up as A&A <laughs> or uh, SNA, which is like statement and answer. Mm -hmm. Here's what I mean by that. Um, if you like, I want you to just pause here for a few minutes. And I think the purpose of Q&A is for us to delve a little bit deeper, for us to gain clarity and understanding on, on an issue. Uh, not for us to be combative or argumentative. Okay, so that's ground rule number one. If we're just bringing things up to be combative or argumentative, let's, let's reserve that for another space. Okay, let's seek for understanding with a heart of understanding. Uh, number two is ask a question. Do you understand? <laughs> As opposed to... Sharing five minutes of a backstory narrative before you, f and then like kind of asking no question. And now we have to discern what do you want me to respond to here in this? I'm just speaking for some ex from experience here. Anything you would add to this, Jonathan? <laughs> You're good. Okay, is that helpful? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you betcha. All right, so all the stuff that doesn't work, I'm just going to yeah. deflect to you. Oh, anyway. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all righty. Very good. Okay, here we go. We'll start. We're going to do this arc. Since we're on the hearth arc metaphor, we're going to start here with Stephanie. Jesse, did I see your hand? Uh, Jesse. Anybody else in this zone? Then Everett. And then we're going to go to Steve. Also, hey, be considerate. Be considerate. Meaning um, there are other people here who have questions that are important to them. And then also to be realistic. Okay, so whatever your question is, it would probably take a lot of time to really adequately address it. Chris is going to just hit it kind of on a on a cursory level. So then Steve, hold their hands, and then Isaac, and we'll stop there for now. Okay, great. So I just love where you ended. Hmm. Um, 
So I wondered if you could just expand a little bit. My question is, talking about the goal of ministry is to become this as soon as possible. Sometimes my experience is um, on the bottom of that arc, there's a, a situation that makes those words, makes that, yeah. s- th- that person more powerful because of dying, the sickness, yeah, yeah. the season of life. So how do you how do you capture the essence of that, like in your forties, in your early fifties, when yeah. you, you know when you're not dying of disease? How do you capture the power of of those moments or that or that season mm-hmm. without the season? That would be my question. Yeah, well, that's good. I mean, that's a great question. Thank you for that. I mean, I, I think you see that in Jesus, of course. I mean, he doesn't live to be an old man, but he dies completely at the mercy of the people around him. Right, I mean, he dies like an old person. And a lot of the early church fathers talk about this, that how Jesus, even though he only lived 33 years, that he was treated in ways that were true of the whole arc of the human life. And it was important to them to insist that Jesus was treated as if he were feeble and couldn't care for himself. Like, they love to point out that he couldn't even carry his own cross. That he had reached a point that God couldn't bear the cross he chose for himself. And they, and they thought this was crucial to understanding what it meant for Jesus to be, to be human. So, I mean, I appreciate you giving me the chance to clarify. I don't mean pretend or try to replicate what can't be replicated. I think it's more just know that you're summoned toward that kind of vulnerability. Don't, don't try to be more vulnerable than you really are. I mean, that, that's not vulnerability, right? But you're summoned toward that kind of weakness. And then just be as true to the season in life that you're living as you can be. Um, there's a verse we talked at lunch today with with Bonnie and Jonathan, some about this, and Pastor Jade and Christy. But the, the Lord gives and takes away verse in Job. I think in light of what we're talking about tonight, the, the previous statement in the verse is, naked I came into the world, and naked I leave it. Right? I think that connects to Jesus become like a little child. Not a five-year-old, like a baby. Like, that's what's going to happen to your body anyway if you live long enough, right? Let that happen to your spirit. Let, let your spirit come to that kind of place of happiness in dependence. Happiness in space, dependence. Right, where you, where you rejoice in being fed and not feeding yourself. Right, like the... There is a season of life in which the joy is you can feed yourself or you can feed others. And then there's the joy of you can be fed. And, and, and trying to, again, without replicating or um, fabricating anything, just trying to be as vulnerable, as, as childlike or as elderly as possible in whatever season you're having to live. Does that help at all? This question is about the left and the right. Yeah. Um, and I'll use dominant and non-dominant. I love my dominant hand. Hate yeah. my non-dominant hand. Yeah. Um, I, I'm assuming there's a difference between working towards being more dexterous with your non-dominant fill in the blank, mm-hmm. and the other side of that would be just trying to do things that I'm not good at. Yeah. Um, what does that look like to use the left or to use the non-dominant to become more ambidextrous? Um, yeah. So I probably didn't, I, I should have been clear. I appreciate again the question because this is really helpful for me to. I think the examples I gave left the impression that I was talking about stuff that you're good at doing versus stuff you're not good at doing. 
and I do mean to, to include that, but really more what I mean is is kind of what comes natural to you versus what you're doing because the Lord requires it. You know it's right, but it doesn't come natural to you. So like some people are naturally generous, right? Or naturally hospitable. I'll brag on my wife again, right? You know, Julie is naturally hospitable. She is energized by visitors. She's energized by company, right? By having people in the house. Other people who live near her don't have that same hospitable spirit, right? But in terms of what God sees, <laughs> stop it, stop it right now. But in terms of what God sees, me being a host to someone probably is more precious than her being a host. Because for her, it's energized. She enjoys it, like it's life-giving to her. It's dominant for her. For me to do it is sacrificial. It is, you know, if I were to do it in some, you know, <laughs> hypothetical future, <laughs> that that you, you see the point I make. So I'm talking more about that kind of stuff, less about, you know, can I can I work in the nursery? Am I good at de- dealing with kids? Or, you know, if I see that there's a family that really needs childcare, even though I really really love kids, am I willing to step in? Not adopt the kid, but can I, you know, take a Sunday night and say, hey, go out and have dinner. I'm going to watch your kid for you, right? Like, that's that's what I mean by left-handed stuff. Does that help? So you talk about creation being the domain of God and causation being the domain of man. Yeah. And I guess I have a hard time seeing the balance in the, you know, it's, it's it's easy to want to pursue the creative side, you know, to pursue things like prayer and hearing hearing the Holy Spirit and moving through the power of the Holy Spirit. And for me, it's very easy to neglect the other end, I guess, if that makes sense, and and to 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 be focused more on the internal life versus the external, you know, the internet the in versus the out mm-hmm. and that type of thing and I guess if you can comment on striking uh, it seems to me like it's a thing of balance and just striking the right balance in that yeah well I mean maybe I don't know if we disagree for sure or not but I, I don't think it's a balance because I don't think creation is something we ever do I think we cause things we make things but God creates right so God created the world we can't do that now, I can write a story about the creation of the world. God created the world. Like, and no matter what I do, I can never create anything. No, he's not. This is a fine point. Maybe, Pastor Jay, you can help me out here. But theologically, those are different domains, right? So you've got the God-creature distinction, right? God is God and creatures are not God, right? So there's God and then there's everything else. What God is and does God is alone and God does alone. What we are, we are, and what we do, we do. Jesus is the one who is both creator and creature. So Jesus creates and causes at the same time. So he turns water to wine. Well, how did he do that? Well, he caused it by saying, go fill those, what were they, basins? No, jars, whatever. Go fill those jars up with water and take them to the master of the feast. He caused that to happen. But he created the wine. So I could have caused them to walk over there. 
I could have said, fill those buckets up and carry it over there. But I could not have turned the water to wine. Right? So Jesus is the one who does both. What we do is we say, fill, and this is what Mary said, do what he tells you to do. And he'll do what only he can do. Right? So it's, it's a matter of, yeah, we tell people to fill the buckets or the jars or whatever, but we can't turn water to wine. That's not what we do. Another image for ministry for me like this is water from a rock. We're rocks. All of us are rocks. If water comes out of us, it's not because we're good at being rocks. When rocks are being really rocky, they're not giving off water. Right? If there's water coming out of a rock, God did something. Right? So if grace is happening from your life, you're not doing that. Don't kid yourself. Right? That's, that's God doing something. You're being a rock, and man, you're, you're a gorgeous-looking rock. You have a hot body. You're a hot body rock. Somebody's hot body pet rock. But you're not a water-yielding rock. Only God can do that. This is Sarah Kinner. I'm asking. Hey, Sarah. How are you? <laughs> how would that work with... How would that, I like you holding it for me. How would that work with like prophecy? So you're saying like yeah. we are causing it, but then the Lord is the one that like makes yeah. something happen. Like yeah. how what? So it, you've got the same question with prophecy that you have with like the Lord's Supper, right? Where you've got it's it's just crackers and grape juice, but then we say it isn't just crackers and grape juice, right? It's just somebody talking, but it isn't just somebody talking. So I think the best way to understand that is. God is active in that in an infinite way, but it doesn't alter what's finite, right? So when we, let's take the doctrine of Scripture, which is really the question, right? Because that's what we believe Scripture is, God's Word. So all of Scripture, in a sense, is prophecy because it's human speech that somehow is also God's speech. The key point is to realize, in terms of what the human beings were doing, they were just being human and saying stuff. In terms of what God was doing, he was speaking his Word. So, you know, one of the questions you get asked in New Testament class and, you know, in, in college or seminary is, did Paul know he was writing Scripture? No, but he didn't need to know. He was just speaking out of his heart to these churches. God was speaking too, and what God was saying was more than Paul could have imagined. And, and the truth is, there were things Paul was saying that what Paul meant isn't what God meant, but God could and still could and does still speak through what Paul said. Right? So if Paul walked in right now and said, you know, let's read my letters together and I'll tell you what they mean, we should reject him. That's not the role God gave him. God didn't send him to us as the authoritative interpreter. He was sent as a prophet. He wrote what he wrote, he said what he said, and God speaks in that. But what he meant it to mean is beside the point. Because that's the causative plan, right? So this is where I think prophecy, I was at a church service, not where we are now, but a church we attended before we moved from Tennessee. And it was, there was a prophetic word given. It was one of those old school Pentecostal churches where there's always tongues and then interpretation. So like in kind of new Pentecostalism, you just go straight to the prophecy because we don't have time to mess with the, the the runaround on the Elala, right? <laughs> but in this church, they wanted the runaround, right? They wanted the Elala. And so someone did that, did the Elala. And then someone interpreted it. 
And the interpretation was, essentially, I'm your dad, and I want to hold you in my arms and rock you and let you rest. No sooner had that man stopped speaking than another person in, in the room spoke up and said, you sicken me with your lack of openness to my mood, and then went on from there. Now, obviously, unless God is just psychopath or schizophrenic, right, the prophetic word from what God was saying, right, wasn't, I'm your dad, let me hold you. Oh, wait a minute. I brought you over here so I could spank you, right? What was happening there is God was speaking, trying to speak, but he's speaking in collaboration with us, and these human beings then are taking control of the word, right? So, the, I don't know what all God was doing in that moment because God's work is infinite, right? But I think there's what those people meant to say, what they were feeling and sensing, and then there's what God was doing. And those things are never identical. They're related because of God's choice to be related to us, but they're not identical. And so, what's that? I'll come back to that. Once I figure it out. <laughs> that was a great question, Sarah. Thank you. Uh, I first want to amen your last statement. About, I think people identify more with your weaknesses and your strengths. Mm -hmm. uh, and so whenever you can be vulnerable that way. But the, my question has to do with the first dimension. Um, and you partially addressed it with the rocks analogy. Uh, but you said right off the bat, what we do, he doesn't. What he does, we don't. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking of, you know, passages like, if you could unpack these passages like uh, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, about working out your salvation, fear and trembling. It says, for it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And then 1 Corinthians 2, yep. 4 is a good one. My message and my preaching we're not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power. So there's yeah. many passages like that. Yeah. How, how is it more addressing more? Uh, uh, this topic, I think, is not addressed enough, so I'm glad you really yeah, thank you, you brought thank it up. Uh, about the dimension of God working in and through us. Yes. You can unpack it. So this is really complex. I mean, this could take a semester, right, to really talk through. Because what we're talking about is the doctrine of nature and grace. And different Christian traditions handle this problem of nature and grace differently. And what I'm arguing for is basically what, it's pretty close to what's called a Lutheran position. So there are other positions, right? You're going to get other teachers would say different. You, this isn't the right answer, right? They're gonna, you're going to get different answers. I mean, it is the right answer. But, like the, but I think the passages you quoted are just to the point, right? You work out your own salvation, for God is at work in you. It seems to me Paul is stressing the distinction, not the identity, not you're going to save yourselves or God's going to save you, but work out your own salvation. That's what you do. And God, you're only able to do that, though, because God is at work in you, right? So the key thing, what, I'm, what, I, what I don't mean is God helps those who help themselves. I do not mean that, right? So if that's what you're hearing me say, I'm not talking about that, right? I'm not saying, you know, we take... One of the poems I hate, I shared a poem I love. Let me share a poem I hate. Footprints. It's an absolute abomination. 
I cannot quote it because I would not utter that filth in the presence of the people of God. I'm ashamed to even mention it. If it's in your house, go home and throw it on the floor. Because the point is, there aren't seasons in our life where God carries us. God is always carrying us. There's always only one set of footprints. And that, those are my feet, but I'm only able to walk at all because God is carrying me. I don't sometimes need God. It's not like, you know what, God, I got it for the next couple of weeks. Can you show up after that? Right? Like, I'm always radically dependent upon God. I, I'm, so there's what I'm doing, but I'm only able to do what I'm doing because God is at work in me. And I think the same thing is happening in Corinthians. Like Paul's saying, my words are one thing. But they're not just my words because the Spirit's power. Like, notice how he doesn't say my power. My words become more than my words because the Spirit's power takes them up. Right? So this bread and wine, they aren't the body and blood of Christ. And then they are because the Spirit takes them up. So my words are my words, and they're always just my words in one sense. But when God collaborates with them, they're my words and he's creating with them doing what only he can do. So to me, the, the passages, those passages are, that's what I'm trying to say, is that very thing, right? There is the Spirit's power and my words, and God has chosen to collaborate with us, right? But what I want to get away from is any idea that I can do the stuff that only God can do, right? Like, I think the idea that we could, that we have more power in people's lives than we actually have, that's what I'm trying to get away from. That we, so we've got this problem, like we need to take responsibility, but we can't assume more responsibility than is actually ours. So I want, I want all of us, I want personally to feel the weight of, I need to live in the world and act in the world in ways that are faithful. But man, I don't ever want to confuse myself or deceive myself into thinking that if I don't do that, some people are going to be lost. Like, so there's, here's one of the ideas that I think we, we really have to be careful with especially those of us who are connected to, like, missions. The idea that if I don't go, they will be damned. Listen, God doesn't need you that bad, right? Like, he may choose to collaborate with you, but he's doing you a favor. You're not doing him a favor, right? Like, it's not like he's, like, sitting there biting his nails, hoping you say yes, because what's he going to do if you don't, right? There's that, I love that, where what the Mordecai says to Esther this is your moment. But if you don't do it, God's got it anyway. Right? And I think somehow we have to hit that note. We have to say to people, this is your moment. Do it. But if you don't do it, God's God. That's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to get to. There's another question back over here. I don't know who it is. Yours got answered? Two birds, one stone. That's right. I like it. <laughs> Um, I'm having a, I would like some ex, uh, better explanation, I guess, um, on that the vertical and the, the horizontal stuff yeah. we've been talking about. So um, if you could speak to and help um, explain a little bit better the, you know, that we do stuff and then God kind of does it. And, and where I'm wrestling personally is I'm, I'm in healthcare. Yeah. And so I do stuff and I don't see that currently as something God is in, you know, yeah. people get better. And then I've also been blessed to get to pray for people and see them instantaneously miraculously healed. And in my, my mind, yeah. I have that dichotomy that you were talking about. So I'm yeah. looking for a little help trying to 
harmonize those two things or understand a little bit better that concept? Okay. Great question. This is, yeah. Um, our problems is we think miracles mean something they don't mean. We think miracles are God working and other things aren't God working. So, but the fact of the matter is miracles are natural too. Like we, we, we were living with a supernatural, natural distinction. So we, and what we're really living with is the stuff we can't explain and the stuff we can't explain. And what ends up happening when you think about the world that way is the stuff you can't explain, that's God. And the stuff you can't explain, that's us. So if you have a headache and I give you an aspirin and you get better, I did that or the aspirin did that or whoever made the aspirin did that. But if you have a headache and I pray for you and you get better, God did that. No. If you get better, God is acting. Whether that's via the natural work of the aspirin or via the natural work of this inexplicable prayer. And we know this is true if we think about it for just a moment because miracles aren't limited to godly people. I mean, this is the thing we, Jesus had this happen to him all the time where his disciples would say, we saw people casting out devils in your name. We put a stop to that. And Jesus is like, why? Why would you stop them? Like anything that's good is good. Right? He isn't saying God was doing that. They were doing it. Just because somebody gets healed, it doesn't mean God healed them. We, when, we, when somebody gets healed, all it means is they got better and we don't know how. That's all it means. And God is not necessarily involved in that. And vice versa. If somebody doesn't get healed, it doesn't mean God isn't involved. So, like, the same thing with the... Jesus, again, with the demons, where he talks about how people in his day cast out demons. He doesn't say they're not actually doing it. Right? They are doing it. Because there are healings happening. Like, there are healings happening in New Age circles. There are healings happening in Islamic communities. There are healings happening in Buddhist communities. There are healings happening to atheists who aren't asking for anything to happen. They just suddenly are better. And they don't know how to explain it. And there are healings happening in Christian communities. Healings is just a word for people getting better in ways we don't understand yet. Right? But we never want to identify the inexplicable with what God is doing. Because if you do, then as soon as that gets explained, God is no longer involved. So let's say, and, and that, all that does is it ties God's work to your ignorance. God is more powerful the more ignorant you are. Because the less you understand about the world, the more there is for God to do. Like, God turned on these lights tonight. No, no, like, I flipped a switch. Tell me how it works. Right? That God is involved in everything. He's not more involved in what we call the miracle than he is involved in what we call the natural. It's all God working. The miracle is just stuff we don't understand yet. What matters is the fruit of what goes on. Right? What Jesus and Paul and the others are interested in is not our people getting healed, but what's happening to the people who are healed. Like what kind of life are they living beyond that, that healing? Jesus is not, I mean, anybody who gets healed, great, that's wonderful. 
but we shouldn't be too impressed with it because people are healed all around, all over the place. And there's a lot of stuff that we call healing that actually isn't. When I worked at ORU, I heard the story of Charles Farah. I know, was he still teaching when you were there? So Dr. Farah was a teacher at ORU for years and years and years. And he wrote this great little book called um, From the Temple Mount, I think is what it's called. If you search Charles Farah Temple, it'll, just Google it, it'll come up. But he talked about the sin of presumption. And this book was born out of this experience he had as a charismatic pastor. And his wife contracted cancer. And they prayed for her to be healed, and they were told she had been healed. And then she died a few days after that. And then they found out that it was a mistake. The doctors had been wrong, that she wasn't actually better, never had been. And this experience of feeling like they had been, that God acted, right? God healed her. No, he didn't, right? They just thought it was what happened. And so I think it's, it's if she had been healed, we rejoice. Thank God, right? She gets to live. She gets to be a wife and a mother and a grandmother. But we don't get too worked up about the inexplicable. Just because they don't explain it doesn't mean it's somehow more divine. And this, I was talking, I think, with Jonathan about this today. A sick body and a healed body are still the same distance from a resurrected body. Right? Sick bodies aren't any further away from the resurrected body than a, than a well body is. Right? So we, we want people to be healthy. We, I mean, we prayed for my friend Jason, and I want him to be well. I do not want him to be sick. And I, whether it's the doctors doing something we can explain and celebrate, or he just suddenly gets better. I, I'm, I prefer that he suddenly gets better because that happens quicker, right? But regardless, God is, I trust that God is at work in all that. And I don't want to over-evaluate or overestimate the importance of the stuff that I can't explain. Right? This, answering the question at all. Yeah, the good, the good news here, so I, again, I think we have to strike a particular note. And the note we want to strike needs to have, so we've, the theme all night since Pastor Jade called out Don in the, in the beginning um, is coffee. So if, if you go down to the story and you ask Don to explain to you the difference between all the coffees, one of the things he'll talk to you about that this one has notes of, right? Like you've got a little bit of almond here, a little bit of cherry, some sweetness here, right? So what I'm interested in, is a note in that sense. Like, I want you to get it. There's a very particular point we have to strike. And that is, God speaks and we speak, and God collaborates with us. But we never fully know what God is doing. And our speech in and of itself has none of that power. Right? So, if, let me tell you a personal story. Right, and I shared this with with your pastors last night. Back to my wife and I dating, I decided that for stupid reasons that we had to break up. And there was a girl in our community, our Bible school. Her name was Brandy, and and she gave prophecies all the time. More prophecies than I mean you can imagine. And every prophecy began with "My people, my people," and was followed by. 
God railing us out for something, like just absolutely letting us have. God was angry a lot. And I really didn't like her. Because one, I thought that was silly. And two, I thought it was abusive. And so she would go around and give people personal words. Like she'd go stop you and say, the Lord says to you. So I was kind of bucked up and ready for this, right? Like, let her try that on me, see what happens, right? So it's the day that I've decided that I'm going to have to tell Julie, I love you, but I, we, we just can't be together. And I'm walking to the car, and I'm serious. Julie's as close to me as, as Christian is to me now. Close to, she's as close to me then as he is to me now, sitting in the car waiting on me. I'm walking to the car. I'm looking at her, and Brandy steps through a door right here in front of me. And she says, can I say something to you? Can I, can I talk to you? I was like, actually, I've got a kind of important conversation. Like, can it wait? She's like, it, it'll be quick. I said, okay. And then she said this, God has made you to be decisive. And you've decided to do something tonight. And God invites you to wait three days and then do whatever you want when he's with you. Now, one thing is she didn't lead off with my people, my people, which made me. <laughs> so here's, here's, here's what I think it is. Here's what I think is happening. I think God is always speaking. God is always trying to speak to us, through us, with us. And sometimes we're more yielded to that than others. Sometimes we're more faithfully aligned than others. And I think there's a way in which I mean, I don't play a wind instrument. You know, they're, they're, I've been around it enough to know, like, you've got to get it just right for the sound to be right, right? If your lips aren't exactly right, it just doesn't sound right. And I think a lot of times what happens with prophets, it's not that God isn't speaking. It's just that they don't have their lips in the right place. So what comes out is, my people, my people, right? But then, in that moment with me, she was aligned, right? She, she came into agreement. I don't think she did anything different willingly or knowingly. It just happened that way for my good. But, or maybe Julie's bad. <laughs> but I think if you're, a, if you're a prophetic person, a person who moves in the prophetic, I think it's so important to be humble enough to realize your words don't matter that much. But you never know what God might do in your speaking. So you don't not speak, right? But you just, I think, I think a lot of this is, one of my favorite passages, of course it would be, um, is Jesus saying we are unprofitable servants. We do what we do, and it doesn't matter that much. And that's okay. It's okay. God is God. And when everything is said and done, my mistakes and my triumphs, he's going to sort it out. He's going to sort it out. I, I, the whole future of the world doesn't ride on me getting this right. My own future doesn't ride on me getting this right. And I think there's this odd way in which when we recognize that we're unprofitable servants, we can be friends with God. But as long as we think we're profitable servants, we'll never really be friends. As long as we think we're useful to God, that God needs us, then we can't just be with God. 
And I, I think God would just much rather just be with us. Right? He's, not, he's not with us because we're particularly good at what we do. I mean, the, we don't have any access to what Jesus thought. We don't know what it's like to be God in the flesh. I mean, some of you may. I have no idea what it's like to be God in the flesh. Even though I'm married to. No, I'm, just I'm saying all these things about her and she's not even here to hear it. Oh, there you are. There you are. Yeah, she is, isn't she? She's just kind of sliding back. Headed to the door. We call that backsliding in the church. But it seems like the only thing that really bothered Jesus was people. Think about how often he says something like, oh, how long do I have to be with you? <laughs> like, the devil didn't bother him? Demons? No. People? Yeah. <laughs> and the more competent they were, the more annoying they were. This is why when he gets to the really high levels of competence, like the politicians, he doesn't even talk to them. It's like, I don't have time for this. Right? Like, if Jesus were here, most of us wouldn't be interesting enough for him. We're too competent. I mean, I'm not, but some of you are. Like, you're competent enough that you're back to the point I said about you're too, really too good at being human to need Jesus. And he's attracted to people who aren't that good at being human. And this is why the rich young ruler walks away. I've kept all that from my youth up. Right? I got this, Jesus. And I think that there's something about the humility of, you know what, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And it's not going to matter very much. And that's okay. Because who knows what God will do with that. And even if he does nothing with it, He's still my friend. That's beautiful to me. 